0: This morning, Um, that scripture passage fast forwards us in the film of Holy Week, uh, away from the Hosannas, away from the time in the temple, and it brings us to the place of the garden, and that's where we're going to pick up as we engage with the scriptures, but we're going to do it in a way that uh, perhaps might be a little bit unconventional this morning, but I think it's going to allow us to... Uh, engage with these texts in a meaningful way. I um, want you to look on the screen and uh, we'll have a little interactive time. Can anyone tell me what we're looking at? It's a script? It's a script. Anyone know what script? Okay, it's not a play, it's a, it's a screenplay, it's, it's a movie. I know it's small. Is anyone familiar enough with what this might be from? I'll talk us through it a little bit. Andy reverently slips a stack from a box and starts flipping through them. Use Nat King, Cole, Bing Crosby's, et cetera. He comes across a certain album, Mozart's Le Nozé de Figaro. He pulls it from the stack, gazing upon it as a man transfixed, it's a thing of beauty. It is the grail. Does this sound familiar to anybody? quick shot to a bathroom scene where Wiley sits on a stall, a Jughead comic on his knees. Quick clip over to Andy wrestling the phonograph player onto the guard's desk, sweeping things onto the floor. He turns it on, slides the album from the sleeve, places the needle in the groove. The music begins. Sound familiar to anybody? Yes. Yes. Shawshank Redemption. Well done, Tate. Well done. Who, who, who is familiar with the Shawshank Redemption? Yeah, uh, commonly referred to as one of uh, the top films in, in American cinema. Uh, if you can bear with me as we read through a little bit more of, of this script, um, we see Wiley, who's the guard, is in the bathroom. He pauses because he hears this music playing. He thinks he hears music, and he calls out, Andy, you hear that? Andy shoots a look at the bathroom and smiles. He goes for broke, he lunges to his feet, barricades the front door. He decides to play it, so, so a squeal of feedback echoes as, as Mozart begins to play through the speakers. The guard, realizing what's going on, while he springs to his feet, his pants tangled around his ankles, trying to, to get out, and then all of a sudden, all over the prison, prisoners stop. They stop what they're doing because they begin to hear the music play out. And the wood shop and the laundry and, and the motors all stop as this music begins to play. Throughout the prison yard comes to a stuttering halt. And everyone stands in place hypnotized. And Andy reclines in his chair. He's transported from the prison And this camera tracks along, and then the Morgan Freeman voiceover begins, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. But truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. Who can picture this in their mind? Maybe you've seen the movie, and, and you're rehearsing this in your mind. You're seeing it afresh. Maybe you've never seen the movie, and you're wondering, okay, I wonder what this looks like. Does anyone know the director of the Shawshank Redemption? Anyone know who directed it? Yeah, a lesser-known director, Frank Bonifant. And he's actually the writer of the script and he's the director. And he talks about Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman sitting around a table as they do the table read. They rehearse the script. And he sees the script, he hears the script that he has written begin to come to life, and and he imagines what the script will be embodied as on film. And so I want us to take a look. Here's a two minute clip of, of that script coming to life, embodied on film. Go ahead. Is that what you imagined when you read the script? Darabont talks about the table reading, and and as he imagined directing this scene, he began to see these images. And what finally came out was consistent with the script, but it was completely different. The embodiment, the soundtrack, the scenery added elements to the script that came to life in new ways. And uh, if I can suggest that our scripture passages today follow somewhat of a similar pattern. And they're passages that we've been engaging with throughout this morning. We took some time in our prayers of the people to pray through the Lord's Prayer. And we took some time to read through this vignette of Christ in the Garden can I present to us that perhaps Jesus' teaching of the Lord's Prayer presents a script for us that comes to life, comes to the fullness of the drama in the garden of Gethsemane? Uh, if we consider the Lord's Prayer for a second, we have this in a number of the Gospels, right? But if, if we see this as, as uh, Matthew is retelling the teaching that he hears of Christ, we have to set this in a context. Right, If Shawshank, if if that scene is set in the context of the prison, we have to understand a little bit about the context of the prayer to understand what's being said. This comes after his disciples uh, say, teach us to pray. Why do they ask to be taught to pray? Does anyone know? What's come directly before this? Jesus, in the middle of his teaching, begins railing against the systems of prayer that he sees. He talks about those who stand on the corners and pray for attention, those who come into the temples and pray for attention. And he says, that's not how you should pray. When you should pray, you should should go into your corner, go into your closet, find that private place and be with God. And so they say, teacher, teach us then, teach us to pray. And so, he then comes and he teaches to pray. This is the context of the prayer. And he gives them what to us has become known as the Lord's Prayer. Now, this is the beautiful part about the Anglican tradition and and many of our liturgical traditions. It's a beautiful part that any time in a service, if someone says, Our Father, who art in heaven, what happens? Hallowed Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We begin into... The retelling and the praying corporately of this. Which is the beautiful part of a liturgy. That we have this. It's in our minds. It's in our souls. It's on our lips. And that at the prompting, we can bring this forth and bring this out unto the Lord together as a community. But the danger in a liturgy or the danger in a script is that it also can become a rote recitation rather than an effectual prayer. Unto the Lord. And so, if we see this Lord's Prayer as something that He gives His disciples, a teaching He gives His disciples as a script for how to engage with God, we're invited into the garden where we see a second teaching of the exact same thing, but not in something to be recited, but a prayer to be embodied. In this second teaching, the Lord's Prayer in Gethsemane, we see the human experience finding its voice. We see this script of the Lord's Prayer being played out on the big screen with the soundtrack and with the setting and with scenery. And just Jesus teaches us to pray again, not with plain recitation, but he makes prayer a doing and he dem- demonstrates that it's not just a rote recitation, but it's this active relationship uh, between a father and a son. But before we even get into to the, the prayer, can we look at it like this? That, that if Matthew 6 is in some ways the script, then Gethsemane, we're going to say, is the drama. This is the big screen. But before we get into the script, let, let's look at the setting, right? Right before he taught his disciples, he gave the context of of private prayer, and so we even see that happen here. So if we can understand the context of Gethsemane, uh, we see that even in this prayer, even in the acting out of the script, that the words of Jesus are matched by the way of Jesus. Even in this prayer, it's not a public prayer. He, he removes himself from the eleven. He brings three with him. And then even moves further from the three and goes further on. It says, he took with him Peter and James and John, and he was distressed and agitated. In Luke, it says, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prays. And so even in the doing of this, he shows us A consistency a congruency with his teaching. And Eric, if you can go on to the, the next slide, we, we see this. He, he, before he gets into the words, his posture reflects his teaching. There's complete congruence. He creates this cinematic context for words that match the way. Both in Mark and Luke, we see him moving away to a place of private prayer and The text tells us that it didn't seem that the disciples were all interested in watching anyway as they begin to snooze by the trees. But the context is set for this private prayer. And so we see Jesus' prayer. And he begins with addressing the Father. And so he starts, Abba, Father, Father. But this isn't some formal salutation. It's not a mechanical moniker of just beginning a prayer. What we see is a passionate crying out to a daddy. Abba, Father is a cry. It's a howl. It's a spontaneous, needful plea. It's this instinctual outcry reflecting intimacy between a father and a son imagine this time when I was hiking with my kids and then they ran up ahead and I stopped to linger to look at something and all of a sudden they realized I was no longer with them and what did I hear from around the bend daddy daddy they knew I was present They knew I was even near, but an instinctual outcry for closeness, for connection, for relationship is what we see here with Jesus. We see the beginning of this prayer come to life and take embodiment in even how he addresses his father. It's intimate. And in some ways, it's even the inverse of that baptismal identity that Jordan's been talking about, this this idea of blessedness. And rather than the father saying, you are my son, you have the son calling out, Daddy, are you there? Daddy. It's an intimate identity of relationship. And he then goes on. In the Lord's Prayer, it's hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. He knows he's entering in this hour where the kingdom of God will touch earth through the crucifixion. But uh, he prays, your will be done. He says, remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but you want. He reiterates the fact that he has deep desires. He declares these deepest, desperate desires. Desires. He gives an audacious honesty that I know this has been the plan since the beginning. Right? This is the striking of the heel that needs to happen. I know this is the plan, but I don't want it. Take it from me. It's an audacious honesty from the God made man. But he declares it audibly to his Father. But under the request, he also places an attitude of faithfulness obedience, and he refuses to cling to that power. He actively releases his will unto that of the Father, and he says, your will be done, even though I can declare my desire. And he then moves on. And if we jump to Luke, we see a really interesting part of Luke's narrative. Right In the midst of all of this, We're told that an angel from heaven appears to Jesus and gives him strength because in his anguish, he's praying earnestly like drops of blood. The sweat is coming out. This distress is bringing about this. And in the midst of that, we're told that an angel comes and gives him strength. And we see this fulfillment of daily bread being given for the exact situation that's needed. We see specific provision within specific situations. And what appears is this supernatural, this angel comes as a supernatural sufficiency for strength within the scenario. And the angel comes and gives strength and he continues to pray in earnest. And it seems like his prayer is not answered. He prays that the cup would be removed, and while the cup is not removed, he's given strength to sustain the situation. We're going to see several hours from now an active forgiveness that he gives to those who betray and those who torture, and those who crucify. And from a cross, he's going to utter the words, Father, forgive them. A costly forgiveness he's going to give. We also see this prayer for divine deliverance. As we move to the end of this prayer, he prays that this might pass from him again. He comes and says, remove this cup from me, Father. Remove it from me. And the Father doesn't remove it. In the moment, he does not deliver. We see the active engagement from the Father asking him to drink this cup and take this on and walk in this way. And this Lord's Prayer that's given to us as a script that we rehearse every Sunday, that we recite every Sunday, is demonstrated for us in agony, and in anxiety, and in pain, and in suffering, but in the fullness of the human spirit and emotion in the garden of Gethsemane. We see action, emotion, thought, desire, body, spirit, all oriented to the Father, all communing with the Father in the garden, lived to the fullness in complete authenticity. This is the invitation we have in the Lord's Prayer. And so this is what we're going to pause for a minute now. And we're going to re-pray our prayers of the people. And David's going to come up and he's going to play for us. He's going to play for for two minutes. But here's what I want us to think through. As we re-pray this prayers of the people, here's a bit of a summation. In this prayer in the garden, we see this intimacy and identity This relationship with the Father. We see an active release of the Son and a refusal to cling to that divinity. We see specific provision. We see supernatural sufficiency. We're given insight into a costly forgiveness and a divine deliverance. Here's what I'm going to ask we're going to take two minutes. I'm going to ask that you choose one of these and we pray around this. We embody that Lord's Prayer in perhaps a new way. That we take one of these and we pray this into a specific situation in our lives, a specific context, a person, a relationship. But that this Lord's Prayer that we so often recite would become an embodiment in one of these. So we'll take some time, move into this prayer, and then we'll end our time. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Does anyone know the thesis statement from Shawshank Redemption? The final phrase? Done a little bit of editorialization on this to make it uh, safe for our gathering. But um, this is how Shawshank ends. I don't want to spoil it by giving away the story, but Morgan Freeman, and the only way the, he, he can do it, speaks over top of a panning field, and he says, Andy Dufresne, who crawled through a river of filth, came out clean on the other side. In some ways, this phrase captures the entirety of the story of Shawshank. And it speaks of the redemption of all the pain, all the awfulness, all of the injustice. It captures the fullness of this. And we have this in our prayer as well. For us, it looks like this. It says this, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. This is the closing, ending credits. This is the voiceover. This is the thesis statement summed up in one sentence that captures all that we see in the garden. Jesus declares this. And while the script plays out over the course of the next three days, and over the course of eternity, we're invited into this script, into this drama as we approach the table. So this is the great turn of the drama that everything we see in the garden, when the kingdom looks to be in gravest danger, it's eternally secure. When Jesus appears to be most powerless, most anxious, most emptied, it's this choice to empty himself that demonstrates this divine strength. And when the greatest of human humiliation will play out in the coming hours on a wooden cross, Christ's glory begins resounding. Resounding that plays out year after year into eternity. This is the drama around which we commune. This is the drama that we're invited into through the Lord's Prayer and through this table. And so, uh, we don't come to recite a script, but to rehearse a way and to represent a posture as we approach this table. So Jordan's gonna lead us through